1 Kings 18 that we read with Blake just a few moments ago. While you turn there, uh, I want to speak with you a couple of minutes. One, about our worship itself. As, as we worship in, these unique, in this unique situation, God has brought this about. This is in his hands. And for some reason, uh, he said, uh, I want my people uh, to come to church in mass, to do spacing, uh, mask especially, where people are at risk. And so this is a good thing. And I have learned during this time many things about worship. Of course, we all want to sing. I want to, the Lord didn't give me, I can't hit a note, but I can sing, and I love to sing. But right now I must be content with mouthing the words and singing quietly. You can do that. Just say the words. And God hears us. God hears the praise of our lips. So do that and be enthusiastic about it in your heart. You don't have to be enthusiastic in your voice, but be enthusiastic in your heart. Every part of the worship, we can do that. And uh, I think we're going to come through this much, much richer for it. I really believe that, that, that when we come back and we can sing and we can be more aggressive in our worship uh, outwardly. Uh, I, I think it's going to be such a blessing and that we will look back on this and say, you know, I, I learned a great deal. Secondly, I want you to know that uh, I was looking at the membership this week and uh, we try to keep in touch with, with everyone in the congregation, especially the people that, that because of underlying health reasons, uh, because of other complications, they cannot be here in worship in person with us. Uh, they wa either watch a video uh, every week and worship that way, or they listen to the, to the service and just listen to the audio. But we have about a third of our congregation that's involved in that, and people that you're used to seeing here, that you are used, used to seeing here five months ago. You saw them every Sunday. That doesn't mean that they're not faithful. They're very faithful. I have been shocked. It's been such a blessing to me to see that, for instance, in our giving, that our giving has been sustained. It, it, has, it has remained, you know, where, where it was, that even though a third of our congregation cannot be here, they bring or send their tithes and their offerings. They are participating with us. And I want you to know that so that when you do see them, uh, if if they say something about not being here, that, that you can't hug on them, but let them know that you love them and that, that we miss seeing them. Uh, but uh, you need to, we need to thank the Lord together how they, that he has kept our congregation together in the power of his spirit. This is a good thing. So please know that. 
I have been looking forward to preaching this message. I could not wait for Sunday to get here. Worked on it all week long. Uh, and I've learned so much. This is not an old series with me. I've preached about Elijah before, but not in not like we've done in this series. And this is, I just, I've learned so much. And I can't wait uh, to share this with you in the power of your spirit. But before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you as your priest for how you've heard our prayers and how you sustained us during this time, how you sustained Christ's Presbyterian Church, how you've kept your people faithful in every way, faithful in worship, faithful in coming to your word, faithful in giving, faithful in prayer. And Father, we bow before you. This morning, as your priests, all of us together, a congregation of priests, and we pray for Peggy Bauer, we unite in prayer and ask that you would bring relief to her. We pray that this surgery will be successful, completely successful in bringing an end to the pain that she was enduring. We pray that and Father, over these next few weeks, you will bring a complete healing to her body and that she will be able to move freely without pain. We pray for Billy Griggs. Oh, Father, thank you for him. We pray that you would bless him during this time. By the power of your spirit, cause him to focus on where he's headed, to focus on the place you've prepared for him and to be without fear. We pray that for all of us during this time. Father, we pray that we will not be people living in fear, that we won't be possessed by our fears. Our Father, it's a righteous thing to fear you. It's a righteous thing to fear that which can hurt us like this disease. But it's wrong to have a fear that owns us that possesses us. And we pray that you would keep our congregation free from COVID-19, but we pray that you would keep us free from fear. Father, don't let it possess us. We pray for individual members. We thank you for members that have had COVID-19 and have recovered fully. We pray that you would continue to bless this congregation with good health. This is in your hands. We pray for our congregation that is at greater risk. We pray for John Cruz this morning that that cancer would not return. Father, I pray for Tommy Pacello this morning that you would bring healing to him, that you would put an end to the cancer. It, it seems impossible, but I know that with you all things are possible, and we pray that either through medical treatment or just, Father, through your command that he would be healed. I pray most of all that he would remember the gospel. We pray, Father, for our land this morning. We pray that you would bring an end to these riots. We pray that you would bless our Congress, bless our Senate. calls us to return to righteousness, 
to care about righteousness. Our Father, we pray for our president that you would bless him as he leads and give him strength for this time, cause him to make right decisions. And now as we open your word, oh, Father, what a joy. We know that John Sartell cannot teach or preach so that it will make any difference in our lives. But we've heard your voice in this place. And you've changed us. We're not the same people we were week after week after week. Your word has, your gospel has had an impact upon our lives and has changed us from the inside out. We pray that you continue to change us this morning. And maybe, Father, maybe some will hear for the first time and be changed and love you. That's our prayer. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a living God, and he has an altar. We're on Mount Carmel. There is what some people would call a God war. Elijah has challenged 450 prophets of Baal to go on Baal and send fire and burn up the sacrifice that they have put on the altar to Baal. Surely he will do that. He is the God of the great cities of Tyre and Sidon. He's the God of the elite. He's the God of the king and queen of the northern kingdom. All the important people worship him. He's the most significant God in the minds of that culture. Surely Baal will answer the challenge. The prophets of Baal, we saw them last week. They prayed, they danced, they cried, they screamed. in their pagan liturgy. They cut themselves, showing and bled profusely, showing their sincere devotion to him. But after hours of dramatic supplication, Baal sends no fire. You see, it's really not a God war because Baal does not exist. He can't wage a war. He does not exist. He had been created in their minds as they made a God in their image, a God of like passions, a God who would suit their lives and suit what they wanted. Baal is not there to send fire. He's simply not there. But there's one truth I want us to latch on this morning, and we will keep coming back to that truth. There is, they built an altar. It was an altar to Baal. The sacrifice was on it. But that sacrifice was not offered. It was ineffective. There was no true altar to Baal. 
It was as false as the God. They've had an entire day. Now Elijah, this morning, takes center stage. There had once been an altar to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there on Mount Carmel. Look at verses 30 and 31. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him. And he repaired, and he repaired. See that? He wasn't building an altar. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He took 12 stones, not 10. He was reminding those 10 northern tribes that had broken away from Israel, that had rebelled against Jerusalem, broken away and established a separate kingdom. He was reminding those 10 tribes that they were still a part of Israel. He didn't take 10 stones. He took 12 stones. For the altar of God, the God of Israel, was being restored. It had been torn down as Israel had rejected their God year after year after year, decade after decade. Elijah saw that altar and he began to repair it. That's what some of us need to do. We need to do that in our homes. That's what some churches need to do. We need to reconstruct the altar of the gospel. The altar of God, the God who's there in our families, in our churches, in our marriages. Some of us have gotten away from Scripture, from God's Word, from prayer, from the incarnation, from the cross, from the resurrection. What happens? How how does that happen? How do we get away from that? The false, same thing that happened there in Samaria, in the northern kingdom. The false gods of any secular culture will constantly tear down the holy places of Scripture. Now, they may not exist, but they exist in our minds, in our hearts, and as we chase after these false gods, the altars of the living God are destroyed. This is what the Antichrist culture of Ahab's day had done. They had... Remember, they killed the prophets. They tore down the altars. The same world that wanted to destroy Israel and the God of Israel will destroy the church of Jesus Christ wherever they find it. Understand that. In our lives, there's not a day that passes that the world around us does not tear at the sacred altars that God has built for us in our lives, in our homes, in our church. But we should take heart this morning and take a close look at the place where Elijah was. Why? First, he was on Mount Carmel. We think of it as being a part of the promised land, don't we? 
It was part of the that God gave to Israel. But the annals of the ungodly nation of Syria, they are just north of the promised land. In their history, in their annals, you know how Mount Carmel is described? It's described as the mountain of Baham. That's what it's called in their history. Not Mount Carmel, but the mountain of Baal. Why did Elijah, remember who chose to meet at Mount Carmel? Who gave the commands to bring the prophets of Baal Baal there? Who gave them? Elijah did. Elijah said, you get together the prophets of Baal and meet me at Mount Carmel. Why did Elijah choose that place as a place of confrontation? He was invading what had been Baha'u'llah's stronghold. In sports, you remember, it's throughout that region it was known as the mountain of Baha'u'llah. That's how they put entire inside. In sports, we speak of the home field advantage. When the game is being played on our home field, it's to the home field, the team of the home field's advantage. It is the goal of the visiting team to humiliate the home team by beating them on their home field. Do we not often feel as if we're trying to rebuild and keep the altar of God in our lives and in our families and our churches, as we're trying to do that in the world's stronghold, that's hard. Do we not often feel that we are on the other team's home field in this spiritual battle? I feel like that. Take heart. That is exactly where Elijah fought and won a great victory. In fact, that's usually how it is. This is our Father's world, but the world around us doesn't know that, doesn't acknowledge that. And we live in the midst of such a culture. Look at Mount Carmel. Go back there. As we strive to keep these altars built, as we strive to repair them. Elijah was only one man. How many prophets of Baha were there? 450. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baha's prophets are 450 men. There's Elijah, the lone prophet of God. Opposite him, 450 prophets of Baha robed in all of their expensive liturgical finery. Do you not feel, do we not feel, often feel outnumbered as we go out into the world, whether it's in our schools, our sports, as we move through our culture, do we not feel outnumbered? Descartes, that's what we see at Mount Carmel. But then Elijah seems to even make it harder for the God of Israel. 
Look at verse 33. And he put the, he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and filled the trench with water. It was saturated. That sacrifice, that wood was dripping. When it says jars, we think of a little jar. These were big urns. Four large urns, three times on the, soak it with water. It's impossible to light wood soaked with water. Do this, do this this afternoon. Go in your, go in your backyard, saturate, run a hose over a log for several hours and go out and strike a match. Well, no, light a torch. You can't burn that wood. That was God's way. God's way of doing things. And he was the one that commanded Elijah to do this. Remember when Gideon had several thousand men to fight the Midianites? Remember that? God reduced their army down to 10,000 people through a process. And then he said to Gideon, Gideon, that's still too many men. And he gave them another test. And he cut it down to 300. Gideon's army was cut down three to 300 men. And God said to Gideon, that's about right. And Gideon said, but God, the Midianites have 135,000. We're going to 300 men, really, are going to take, 100, going to take on 135,000. God says, yes, that is a battle that you can win only in the power of God. Elijah soaked the sacrifice in the wood with water. Only God could light that fire. Elijah knew what he was, Elijah knew what he was doing. The next time, you're in despair of being in the world's territory. The next time you're being in despair about being outnumbered, remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. In the world's territory, in Baha'u's territory, outnumbered in a battle that only God not only by on the way that he could win is of God intervened. So we come to we come to that moment. Elijah's liturgy did not involve shouting or dancing or pleading for hours or cutting himself profusely in desperation. He simply prayed. But look at that prayer. It speaks to us. Look at verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you're the God of Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
he he prayed a specific prayer to God, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not include Baal and Asherah, Baal and Asherah, in his prayer. The world around us would be at peace if we would only include all the other gods, all the other idols in our prayers. Pray a prayer that is Christian. Pray a prayer that's Islamic. Pray a prayer that's Hindu. Pray a Buddhist prayer, a Christian prayer. Pray a Jewish prayer. Pray a generic prayer that won't offend. But what did he pray? His prayer was not generic. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that specific God, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel. Folks, Elijah was not speaking to the people of Israel. He was not speaking to the prophets of Baal. He was not speaking to Ahab. He was speaking to the Lord God Almighty, and that's to whom we're speaking. We forget that. John Sartell in public when you're praying at the civic club or at the ball game or whatever, just leave out the name of Jesus. I didn't know I was talking to the people gathered in that arena or at that club. I thought I was addressing the living God. We all know, or most of us know, Ronald Jenkins. What, what, if, what if I introduced Ronald Jenkins the next time I was with him? What if I introduced him to my friends as Joe Smith? Say, this is Joe Smith. Ronald, I'm sorry. You know, people really don't like you, and my friends don't like your name. So I'll just call you Joe Smith in front of them. That's what we do with the name of God Almighty. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do with the Son of God. His name is Jesus the Christ. But we mustn't use that name. The culture won't like it. Well, that did not stop Elijah and shouldn't stop us. What happened next? The fire fell. The fire, this lightning struck and everything was burned up, even the water. The fire for the sacrifice was provided for God by God himself. And how do we respond? Yes. Yes, yes, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has made himself known. He's proven that Baal does not exist. The God of Israel alone is the living God. Now that is a valid exposition of this passage. That's expository preaching from this passage, isn't it? That's what this passage teaches. 
Our God is alive and living and that there's no other God. However, there are five words in that passage that say there is far, far more to this event. Look at verse 38 and see these words. And consumed the burnt offerings. We focus on the fire. We focus on the fire coming down. God speaking in that fire. And we forget about the altar. We forget about the sacrifice. Remember, I said, don't forget, there was an altar for Baal. The fire did not fall down there because there was no God, and that was not a genuine altar. It was no altar at all. Don't forget that. Think about this. Elijah could have called down fire and burned up the palace of Ahab. He could have prayed that God would send fire and destroy the temple of Baal in Samaria. No. God was not only proving himself in sending the fire, in building the altar and sending the fire, he was saying to the northern kingdom of Israel, you not only have a God, but you have an altar. This same event had occurred previously in Israel. It occurred three times. I'll only mention two. The first one took place when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember that? The tent of meetings, a tent where they went to meet with God, where they went to worship. When they initiated that worship, they put the, the priest, they had built the altar, they put a sacrifice on the altar. And what happened? Look at it. It said from Leviticus 9.24 on your scripture sheet. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. A fire came from God himself. The third time this happened was when Solomon had completed the temple that took place of the tabernacle, took the place of the tabernacle. Solomon completed the temple. And they did the same thing. On the altar, they put the sacrifice, this great new altar, they put the sacrifice on it. And we read in 2 Chronicles 7.1, look at it on your sheet, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God sent fire to the altar at the two most significant moments in Israel's history of worship. When the tabernacle was completed, their first sacrifice, God sent the fire. When the temple was completed, their first sacrifice, God sent the fire. God was saying to his people, I'm alive and present, and I have an altar by which you will approach me. That's what was happening at Carmel that day. God was saying to Israel once more, you have a living God and he has an altar by which you will approach him. But we must go even, deep, go even deeper. Fire in the Old Testament is a sign of what? It's a sign of God's judgment. 
So the person offering the sacrifice would put his hands on the sacrifice and confess his sins. And the sacrifice was then slain and burned on the altar. God's judgment on that sin. When God sent the fire there on the sacrifice in the tabernacle, it's important. His fire, his judgment fell on the sacrifice. It didn't fall on the people. When Solomon when the priests in Solomon's day had prepared the sacrifice at the temple. The fire came and what? It fell on the sacrifice, not on the people. At Mount Carmel, his fire did not fall on the people. They had forsaken God and yet in his great mercy, the fire didn't fall on them. It fell on the sacrifice, fell on the altar. God was saying, Israel, you not only have a living God, but you have an altar. Question. Well, no, you, you know where we're headed. What happened at Mount Carmel is directly related to what happened at Mount Calvary. Think of all the people that deserve God's judgment there at Calvary. There was a sacrifice there who knew no sin. The Lamb of God was there. Our sin was placed on him. And the fire of God's judgment fell on Jesus. Consider this. How often have we wanted the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to show himself in our culture, to show himself in our day, improve himself in our world. He does that. People, he does that every day. But that's a message for another time, another day. But the message for today is that he not only proves himself and shows the gods of this world to be empty vessels, he shouts to us that he's created an altar for us. He created an altar for the people of Israel at the tabernacle. He created an altar for the people of God in the temple. He created an altar for the people of God at Calvary. In fact, all those other altars and sacrifices, they were simply symbols of the lamb God was sending, of the altar God was building and would build. Do you want God to prove himself to you? Be careful. Be careful. Maybe the person who says, I want God to come and show himself is desiring their own destruction. Remember the people of Baal, they didn't have an altar. And if you want God to make himself known, you better have an altar. You need one. Listen to the prophet Amos, and we'll look at this scripture and we're done. But don't leave me yet. Don't leave off looking at scripture yet. Look at Amos 5, 18. Listen to what God says through Amos to the people of Israel. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord.
He's saying, woe to you who desire for God to make his presence known, to come. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or if he went into the house for safety and leaned against the wall and the serpent bit him. You want God to make himself known? It may be to your own destruction. Prophets of Baal didn't have an altar. He goes on in Amos 5 again. Look at your scripture sheet in Amos 5.21. God says, I hate, I despise your feast. I'll take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I'll not look on them. Why? You see, he was saying, Israel, you don't have a true altar. They had been worshiping other gods. He goes on in that passage to say, I'm coming. I'm going to visit you. And you're going to take your silly, inane gods with you when I send you off in judgment in exile to Babylon. You can carry those gods off. He was saying, you've profaned my altar in worshiping these other gods. He was saying, you don't have an altar. People, it's insane to tell God to make himself known. To make himself known unless you know you have an altar, his altar. At Mount Carmel was the worship at the altar of Baal effective? No. There was no true altar. So as we come away from this today, not only did the God of Israel make himself known, he declared to Israel, you have a true and effective altar. What a time to come to God's table. As we remember, we have an altar. The body and blood of Jesus Christ. In our worship every Sunday, how do we begin? The same way we began this morning. We've come to meet with God who made us, who sustains us and redeems us. What are we saying in that statement? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a living God and he has an altar.